0: Queeros, Cammie here. Well, first of all, I got a great episode of the show today with the poet and Harvard professor Stephanie Burt. And you're not going to believe this. I am $150 away from my goal for this show for Patreon. I'm sure we could always, like, add more or whatever. Um, But just saying, patreon.com slash queeros, 150 bones. Y'all have been consistently joining up. Joining up? I don't even know. Becoming patrons and you get cool perks. And also, I appreciate you. Hey, why not? Why not support today? Let's get. Let's close that one hundred fifty dollars gap. Oh, enjoy Stephanie Bird. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself?
1: I would be honored. I am Stephanie Burt and I write books and poems and book reviews. And I teach. I teach at Harvard. Before that I taught at McAllister College in Minnesota. And I write books of poems by me. And I write a book and some other poems that are by me in collaboration with a super queer poet who's been dead for about two thousand years. And I write books about how to find more poems that you like and like more poems that you find and figure out what the heck is going on inside those poems if you want to open them up with a tool of your choice. And I haven't written them as books, although that's coming, but I co-write fiction and I write articles and reviews and the like about things that are not poems, including Trans Joy and Trans Identity and Trans Existence and X-Men comic books and obscure pop music and the WNBA, although not so much anymore. And... Random objects. Back when I used to review random objects for a wonderful magazine called The Believer that no longer runs random object reviews. But I'm a writer. If you want, if you want two words, just writer and teacher are probably the right words here.
0: But that was a really delightful intro. Thank Very, you. I think that was one of the more poetic.
1: Wait, oh. I, just this
0: is I can't believe this is going to be the first question that I have as a follow up question. But why no longer the WNBA?
1: I don't live in a WNBA city anymore. Uh, when during the last few years that we lived in St. Paul, Minnesota, Minnesota Lynx fandom was a very important part of our life and Minnesota Golden Gopher fandom to some extent as well. When Lindsay Whalen and Janelle McCarville were on that team, but Boston is a great place to live for a lot of reasons. And we do have women's pro hockey, but we do not have women's pro basketball.
0: Actually, I... I have been I'm from Chicago and I I never went to see the WNBA team, the there, which I think it's called the Sky.
1: The Sky, yeah.
0: Yeah. But I um I've been to some games here in LA um for the Sparks and yeah. and it is really cool. First of all, the basketball is really fun and also I had to meet a bunch of the players, which was super cool. Oh, cool. Um, cool. We're the same size, obviously. Um, and then also the other thing that I will say is mm-hmm. that the fandom was really interesting to me. Yes. Um, because I like, yes, there were some queer folks there. Um, but also one night I went and it was gospel night. Um, and so I was just I was just like struck by the sheer number of Black women that were yeah. there to watch the Sparks. Yeah, I don't know what I thought would be the fan base for the WNBA because I certainly have been to NBA games um, as well. And I think I just was surprised. It was very cool to see. Like, I've also seen, I've seen like women's soccer, you know? Mm-hmm. And that feels mm-hmm. like, anyway, this was just the most women I had ever seen at a sporting event. And not all... Of them, either visibly queer or like, you know, there'd be like m- mother-daughter teams yeah, going out. Yeah. So it wasn't just like a bunch of queer women there with their pals. It was like, or, you know, with dates, it was like a an actual group, a diverse and interesting on age and race and a lot of different vectors, a really interesting audience for a sporting event. I was struck yeah. by it. I hadn't ever really been to a pro sporting event that felt that, that felt like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, WNBA fandom was the right fandom for me at that time. And and I you know, value the friendships I made in it. And the, the blog that I worked on is still maintained. It's very good. It's just called women's hoops blog and the excellent and super knowledgeable and thoughtful Helen Wheelock, uh, who is based in New York city and therefore has the Uh, Blessing and curse of being a New York Liberty fan Um, uh, runs it now, and and she's great. But it's WNBA games bring together demographics that you wouldn't necessarily always see together. And it does vary from city to city. The, The last few games I went to were Connecticut Sun Home games, and I think that crowd's probably... A little bit whiter and a little bit older than what you'd get at a Washington Mystics game, for example, or a Chicago Sky game. But yeah, there's people who are there for the basketball, and there are people who are there because they have daughters, and there are people who are there for the kind of queer community that materializes around women's sports. And they're not necessarily three groups of people who would come together outside of that league and that sport. And you see this in college women hoops, women's hoops as well, which has many more fans for a number of reasons. But I found after a while that my ability to get really intensely involved as a fan with the sport at the college level was damaged by the ethical quandaries of getting really into the athlete persona of someone who was 18 or 19 and wasn't being paid. And if you want to get, you know, absurdly to the nth level of trivia behind the career of someone who's an adult and has chosen to to use the skill for a living and has sort of made a choice, that just felt better. Also, college players only have four-year careers. So, if somebody tears her ACL, that's a quarter of her college career, right there. And if you and ACL tears are terrible, but uh, an elite WNBA player can have a fifteen-year career. I forget how long Lisa Leslie, since you mentioned the Sparks, was in it, but just you could follow much longer careers. And you're you know, supporting a, supporting an adult making a choice,
0: right? I uh, I I feel you. I mean, that's also something that um, I think it's my age that has given me perspective on because I guess I just feel I feel weird, <laughs> you know, um, being a part of that much pressure put on a young person, you know, because there there is like the. How cool for you – I think, you know, we – beyond mm-hmm. the not being paid quandary, which I think is mm-hmm. a whole a very, yeah. very good and important quandary, then there's the, um, you know, even if you were, it's just – it's just is like so – I don't know. I just have been around really invested sports fans for my whole life, yeah. and I am aware of what it is like to be around men, adult men yelling <laughs> – in such a scary way. And yeah. I just think about being that young and like absorbing all that with your body and, you know, making that group of people happy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's a real, yeah, it's a real interesting thing that I don't think we've ever talked about
1: on the show. Here we go. Alex, who is a member of our awesome pod, just kind of walked past.
0: When you say your, your pod, who's in your pod?
1: Um, right now, uh, it is... My and my wife, Jessie, and our two kids who are in ninth and fifth grade and Alex and Mara.
0: And how, I don't, I don't know that I, it's so hard to keep up with what's happening different mm-hmm. places, but how is it, are you're not, you're not in-person teaching?
1: Cause, I am not. Because Harvard is remote. Harvard is remote until the fall. whole year, yeah.
0: Um do other people in your pod have jobs that require them to leave the house or are y'all like in it?
1: (laughs) Uh, no, no. I mean, this is, um, obviously it's not for everyone, but if you can have a pod that includes more than one physical building, Mm. uh, it's, it's really a lifesaver for one of us to be able to go to someone else's place. Uh, and Alex works from home. I work from home. Mara works from home. Jesse, my wife, uh, works at the high school as a teaching assistant person. Someone who shows up to help, partly remote and partly in the classroom, school go properly. And oh, I'm yeah. glad you
0: have that. I'm glad.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, she's she's been involved with the school system here one way or another for quite a while. And I, I think I can say this without like, I think I'm allowed to say this. I have found over years and years that other people in our local community in in the town where we live, um, speak of, of Jesse with, Something between affection and reverence for the amount of time and attention that she puts into making our town better and making our schools better, and she oh, is working wonderful. she's she's working in the school system right now, so she does go into work, and our ninth grader goes in to school hybrid right now, it's two days a week. It's about to become four mornings a week, and our fifth grader just is very, very good at being online and maintaining social and educational lives online and it's just yeah i'm just gonna wake up and log on and do everything online Hmm.
0: i want to ask you some questions about about your job your teaching position and some of them i guess are i mean we can talk about what it's like for you teaching remotely this year but i'm i'm even more curious about what courses you specifically teach what are the
1: courses that you specifically teach i'm happy to teach about Uh, to talk about the courses that I'm teaching. Um, The next thing I have to do today is to teach my queer lit course. uh, As I now teach the Harvard English department's queer lit course. And it is not Harvard's only queer literature and culture course by any means, but it is the one that is literature oriented, that is oriented towards the artfulness of works of art, the artfulness of works of art that use words, as well as towards what those works can tell us. About what we now call queerness in various times and places. Um, so oh, I, I wish that. I
0: could take that class.
1: <laughs> I can send you the <laughs> syllabus. It's it's yeah, it's changed do. a lot. Um, I
0: would love to. I would love to see the syllabus. I'm so curious about what that experience is like, specifically at Harvard. And then, like, maybe you could talk about that. And then I, here, here's here's where here's where my question is coming from. So I went to Boston College, right? Across the river. I right. lived in Somerville for a while. Mm-hmm. And I worked in Cambridge for a while. Yeah. And because of that, you know, I've just been around Harvard and and uh-huh. and knew people that went there, etc. Then, um, this last year I've been taking divinity school classes oh, and at school a bunch of at a bunch of different places. And one of them is Harvard. And um I actually will say I have had some interesting experiences with it where like One of the classes felt like very sort of, um, I think of a certain vibe that's happening in Cambridge where somebody is like very into multiculturalism and very into like getting their food from the farmer's market, but is also a white person. (laughs) Like there's that kind of thing. Yeah. And that felt like the vibe of one of the classes. Um, And then also a, a different class I took was about black women in the black church. That class, the because most of the students were Black students in the mm-hmm. Divinity School, they talked about feeling a little out of place at Harvard. So I, I know the vibe of Harvard. It's like a very cutthroat—it um, can be, it can be very competitive and very future-focused and very networking-focused. So I'm just very—I'm curious about the positioning of something like a queer lit class— in that
1: environment, I love that question. Harvard has been very good to me. I have been connected to Harvard one way or another at this point for most of my life. Uh, Why is that? Because uh, I went to Harvard as an undergrad and you know maintained friendships with people who were teaching at Harvard and just people who were at Harvard from one way or another the whole time that I was in England and Connecticut and new York City and Minnesota. And then they decided that they wanted me back. And I've, I've been here since 2007. And honestly, sometimes it feels like I've continuously been teaching at Harvard for my entire life since I was 16, which is not the case. And sometimes it feels like we just got here from Minnesota and we're still unpacking. Mm-hmm. And Harvard students are not one thing. Harvard is a lot of things. It is big, it is full of itself, it is full of resources that it makes available often to people who do good things with them, sometimes people who do bad things with them. It's a lot of resources and it's a lot of old stuff and it's a lot of needlessly intimidating stuff, <laughs> but it also has enough good people and so much money that it is able to open channels and provide accommodations and fixes for people and for projects who deserve those things in a way that a less, I'll just say it, a less rich school could not. Um, Sometimes Harvard makes good decisions about who to buy and what to buy. And Harvard students, I mean, I get asked, uh, you're not the first person to have asked that question. And it's a question that I love. Harvard students are not one thing. And my experience of teaching Harvard students in my queer lit classes. And this is, I think the, this is the third time that I've taught queer lit as an undergrad class. I've also taught it as a grad class twice, which is also fun, but quite different. And whether it's that class or my poetry classes, because I was hired with the idea that I would help people read poetry and teach poetry classes. And I love doing that. And I do that every year, whether it's that class or the handful of classes I teach that are neither neither the word poetry nor the word queer is in the title, which tend to be sometimes just kind of special topic classes. Like I taught one on the literature of place and the sense of place. I have a science fiction class I teach every other year. I taught a class about superheroes this fall that went pretty well. I think that's going to be a recurring thing. I taught a comics and graphic novels class, which I really like teaching, which is also about an every other year thing. All of those classes involve poetry indirectly and they're all pretty queer some of the time because it's me. And I don't get a representative sample of Harvard students at all. A random sample of Harvard students would probably tell you something really, really different. And I do get, and I do get some divinity school students um, in my grad classes. I have one now in my grad poetry class. What I would say about the ones I encounter is that I love teaching them. The ones who aren't shy or intimidated are super articulate. Harvard is designed for people who are either very confident or very ambitious. If you are one or the other and you get into Harvard College as an undergrad, you should probably go. If you are neither, no matter how smart, creative, inventive, insightful you are, there's probably a it's probably the wrong choice because it's full of people who are either very confident or very ambitious.
0: Hmm. That's interesting.
1: It's. Yeah. Uh, It's also a place where, in in the space that I move in, modern awareness of disability and neurodiversity and the ways in which meritocracy isn't really a thing. Um, Supposed meritocracy does measure some things that are interesting to measure and that can be measured, like how well other classical pianists think you perform classical piano, or whether you're likely to prove important things in math. But it also supposedly meritocratic measures measure how many books were in your house growing up, just what your parents' income was, whether you're emotionally well-disposed toward tests and test-taking, or whether they just flip you the heck out, which in turn is a measure of, you know, genes and background and is correlated with race and a lot of other things and at least 40% white privilege, some would say 80, collide with the parts of Harvard that are designed to perpetuate the idea of meritocracy. Awards for the single very best thing, pressure against grade inflation. The idea which shows up, we try to keep it away. I try to keep it away from the students, but you see it elsewhere in the institution. The idea that you have to be the absolute very best at something, or you don't deserve to be here. And we were talking about basketball. You could argue that in some times and places and levels, there is a single best basketball player. I think I've seen that claim made on the men's side about LeBron James. But on the women's side, there's never been a single best basketball player, not even Candice Parker, who's pretty versatile. You generally need a ball distributor and you need someone who can take up the middle and be extremely strong. And... You can say who's the best at doing a particular thing, but you can't say who's the overall best. And if you try to measure, you just end up yelling. And basketball is a sport which has winners and losers, and life shouldn't even be like that. So I find myself wanting to push back pretty hard against the idea that <laughs> sure. the purpose of school is comparing and evaluating people. And against the idea that, hey, this, is, this student's contribution is worth... Uh, you know, eight points more than this other student's contribution, even though the terms of my employment for understandable reasons require me to do that sometimes. And I, I just, I love reading books with people who are into the books and reading plays with people who want to think about how the plays work and learning how plays work. Cause I'm certainly not a stage play person and, you know, listening to music with people who can help me understand why the music works. Uh, you had Haley Kiyoko on your show, couple of weeks ago, and her top songs are not on my syllabus this year, but they could be. And I would love to have a couple of people who are young enough that those songs were a major coming out tool for them, and somebody who's a music concentrator, concentrator is just Harvard's silly term for major as a music major in there to talk about where and whether the chord changes do something weird. And somebody else who understands cinematography look at, you know, the differences between the gravel to tempo video and the um, girls like girls video. And then maybe somebody who thinks about pop lyrics the way that I do and just have a class discussion. And Harvard's a good place to do that because it's got so many people who have so many skills, both undergrads and faculty. And honestly, I like being here, but it's also very frustrating because of the Nonsense meritocracy pressure.
0: I think what I'm taking from that answer is that... Um,
1: it was such a long answer. I'm so is sorry. Is that
0: dorks um, about queerness also exist. And hey, I'm Oh, one of those. God, yes. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, no. Um <laughs> you know, I, queerness I, I, dorks?
0: I, yeah. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> and that's, I mean, my class, it's a queerness dork class. We do a unit <laughs> that is contemporary YA, which has become such a valuable space to think about the variety of queer identities right now I would argue better than adult literary realism. Uh, and Mm. we have, we have authors, we have authors show up. Um, I don't know if you saw the novel, The Stars in the Blackness Between Them. Amazing debut Um, novel. It's a Black Lives Matter novel. I'm reading it right
0: now for a
1: book club. Yeah. It's so good. I, I won't spoil you. There's some cool stuff at the end. Um, but I love that novel. Um, the, uh, the, the novelist Rachel Gold, who I have some projects with, who is one of my favorite humans on Earth, has shown up to discuss their novels, which I certainly recommend. Um, depending on what variety of queerness you want to read about first, you'd start with a different Rachel Gold novel, but there are about six. Cool. Um, we, last time we read the Robin Talley novel, Pulp, which is, it's long. I'm not teaching it. This year, but it is about two contemporary teens in the Washington, D.C. area who want to research the kind of Ann Bannon 50s lesbian pulp era and track down a forgotten author. And the novel alternates chapters set in the 20 teens when it's shocking that there used to be so much homophobia with chapters set in the real world of the book in the 50s when. Wow, do you have to keep your relationship secret with Chapters that are and Bannon Pastiche? They are fake 50s lesbian pulp.
0: Wow, I you are getting so this is first of all this is amazing and maybe I just want to have like a full other conversation with you about cuz I wonder like I what I don't know and like I I, I would love to actually hear from listeners I wonder if people even know what you're talking about. And I don't I don't think that's a negative thing. But um but 50s pulp like that that stuff is so interesting and so cool to me. Mm-hmm. And also that um here's okay, here's what I know. And you can tell me if this is
1: okay this is wrong.
0: Um I know that, you know, the folks that were writing these books were like like Ann Bannon was uh married straight woman who lived in the suburbs?
1: Uh she was straight. Um she was not straight. Not straight. No. Okay. Uh we're going to do we're going to explain her. Um so we've been talking about some novels because Cameron asked me about my queer lit course which has some science fiction and it has some renaissance like Shakespeare's time short poetry and long poetry we're doing Christopher Marlowe's play Edward the Second. Uh, about The Gayest King of England, uh, which we're doing that later today. And we do a lot. Uh, and we, you know, we read Oscar Wilde. We read some classics. Um, but we were talking about modern novels, and we were talking about contemporary YA novels and their sources. We were talking about Rachel Gold and about Junita Petrus, P-E-T-R-U-S, who wrote The Stars and the Blackness Between Them. And we were talking about Anne Bannon, who was the most important of the the number of people who wrote in the 1950s uh, what were called pulp novels. They were sold on spinner racks at drugstores. They were cheap. Many of them were super exploitative, and they covered not just people being gay, but lascivious straight people sexual situations and uh, drug use and vampires and anything that might sort of get eyeballs. And the fact that there was a market for novels about scandalous people doing scandalous things, including gay things, meant that there was a market for people who wanted seriously to explore, in particular, the identities of women who love women. People who wanted to do that could send novel manuscripts to publishers and get their novels published, but there were conditions. It had to be—you had to use a pseudonym. You had to be willing to write cheap books from publishers who had no prestige that would be sold in drugstores. And with
0: also, like, I just want to add one tiny yeah. thing: with like a splashy cover, a
1: splashy right? Because, oh, like, because yeah. I
0: feel like also that might be for anybody that doesn't totally know what we're talking about. They've seen this in like like the cover of, I mean, I have one right over there, but it's like, yeah, I've got a couple like, of Yeah. <laughs> it's like, where it's like, you know, somebody's on a motorcycle or where it's like two, like, it's like, this is sort of from, it's like, like lesbian schoolgirl vibes is like, yeah. you know, or everybody's in college and yeah. very, yeah. Anyway, but keep going. But I, that's, I, yeah. I just feel like that's the, yeah, the,
1: the covers, the covers were also designed to, cause men to buy the books
0: yes exactly well it's like this is the this is where Pornhub comes from is what I'm trying to say
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> or Pornhub like at least for the, the was, tags yeah it's this is Pornhub the back when the only video was black and white television
0: <laughs> exactly
1: that's the yeah <laughs> those keep are the going. covers
0: you were talking about the um the requirements from the
1: publisher or, or, right. or
0: the requirements to, right. to do this right but the, the novels
1: the novels did some you know serious psychological thinking and serious thinking about what it meant to come out and serious depicting of the world of bars and of sort of butch femme lives and of people who had come to the West Village to you know, reinvent themselves and be in the gayest available space. And that also meant the idea that you could go to the West Village and move to New York and reinvent yourself and it, at a great cost, but you could do it was available on drugstore spinner racks to people who were living in Carroll, Illinois, or Albuquerque, or wherever they had drugstores. Uh, One of the rules, not for the covers, but for the novels, was that you had to either kill off or convert to heterosexuality or otherwise render unhappy uh, the queer ladies who you were following.
0: I'm so happy that that ended with these novels in the 50s and doesn't currently exist in all television
1: and literature today. <laughs> I mean, this is why I read YA, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Like, I, I think that, was a, I think that, that point was, is, is absolutely true. Yes. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on?
1: Just one more week till max fun drive.
0: <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one.
1: We're all set for Max Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on.
0: But talk to me about Ann Bannon. Tell, so, no, I, tell me. me about
1: her. I mean, when I, as a as like a scholar, um as someone who like writes long pieces where I'm supposed to be a sort of Semi authority in what I'm writing about. There are scholars of '50s lesbian pulp's and their authors, and I am not one. I have, if I'm a scholar of anything, it's poetry first, and maybe science fiction second, and like X-Men comics third. But <laughs> Anne Bannon, what a good who job you have is, is who is married. Oh, I love my job. Um, I'm super <laughs> yeah. lucky to have it. I, I try to help my students get jobs like mine, and and I, I try. So Anne Bannon is married to a dude and starts writing. Uh, she's, she's a stay-at-home mom. Um, starts writing and publishing under a pseudonym in the late 50s. And between 1950, uh, 1957 and 1962, she starts writing about what was really sort of her fantasy life, the life that she wanted, and finally gets to write a happy ending. And she's got a husband and she's making money as a novelist. And after the early 60s, stops being a novelist and pursues a doctorate in linguistics under her real name, of course, uh, which is Anne Weldy. She gets a doctorate in linguistics at Stanford and becomes a college professor for decades. And the books get rediscovered in the 80s and she's no longer married to a dude. Uh, She is a number of years old now, uh, but appears to be still around. She's the best known of several serious lesbian pulp writers who are using the only space available at that time for extended prose explorations of how to be a woman who loves women. And Robin Talley, who is a contemporary YA writer who's based in I think Montgomery County, Maryland, like somewhere in the greater D.C. area, um, which is, I I was a small child there, uh, took these pulps and their often very closeted authors as the seed for a contemporary YA novel that I like very much called Pulp. I hope that's the information that you were looking for.
0: Sure, yeah. And I want to get to poetry. I want to make sure we get to poetry. But I also just want to ask you, you know, as you were talking about the group of students that you work with and. Yeah.
1: Um I didn't even get to the the some of the like diversity within the students I work with.
0: Well, I I think we'll get there right now because what I was going to ask you is this. Mm-hmm. You know, I there was maybe if anybody's a little younger than than me, mm-hmm. um they might not be aware of this because I, I really feel like we don't hear this that much anymore, but you know, growing up, one of the biggest things that was when when people were issuing like a gay panic. Mhm. Uh, you know, now it's bathrooms, right but before bathrooms, it was teachers and it was boy scout leaders, but teach, te- but teachers school. And yeah, the idea that
1: anybody, I think could- they've moved on. I think they've moved on from, um, bathrooms to kids and sports.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, yes, yes, yes. Kids in sports, sports, and then the bathrooms that they'll use at those sports. So yeah, like, and then the teachers that will, you know, <laughs> yeah, so it yeah, all, it yeah. all is, a, is a uh, circle, but, um, Anyway, um, one thing that – so the the idea that, like, there's going to be some, like, queer teacher, trans teacher um, that you encounter that then converts that child and, like, keep keep adults away from kids, like, that was, like, a really big thing. In
1: the 70s and and 80s, yeah. In the 70s and
0: 80s. I would say even the 90s, you know, like, I, like – this was – so, anyway, now, you know – when I was, when I grew up, I had no, because of that <laughs> and yeah. because of that, nobody was out and therefore yep. I had no yep. role models,
1: you know, yeah, teachers, c- teachers could not be out. Yes. Yeah. No, I was in high school in in the, the late eighties and teachers weren't, teachers could not be out.
0: So, so I think that the thing that, you know, that we, that you and I missed, you know, be, was having any sort of resource or adult because, because so far few um, folks in the LGBTQ community were born into families that reflect that. Yes. Some of us are, but few of us are. Yes. And so the other places we could look, you know, the other places you meet adults when you're a little kid, school is a big one. And because the teachers couldn't be out, then we just had like no access to that. That's right. So no models at all. And I'm imagining that, you know, here you are, you're a person that is positioned to meet like... Like young person beyond, young person beyond, young person beyond, you know, you've been at Harvard, you said that since 2007, and you're just constantly yeah. meeting, you know, new people that have signed up for your yeah. courses. And, it, and I,
1: at the college before that, like I met right. great kids when I was in Minnesota. So I've, yeah. Yeah, I've been, I've, I've been full-time employed as someone who teaches college students since 2000.
0: Yeah. So that's, you know, over 20 years. And I, I just, but I just say this because, you know, like, have you noticed a, how often do kids come out to you? And has that changed? And how often are you sought out? You know, I just would imagine that you are very important to young people.
1: I mean, that's a great compliment. I hope so, and I hope I don't let them down. The way that you make a rough estimate of how often a thing happens in daily life is first you look at the time period you're in, and there's a plague. Like, you can't compare. I mean, no one has none of my students has come out to me this semester over Zoom yet. I'll say that. But every semester that I've had in-person undergraduate students, I've had one or more, usually there's more, who wanted to talk about figuring out who they were. And the things that people come out to me about have not been cis, gay, or lesbian, or bi, or pan identities. There are many spaces where like, that's a massive journey, but it seems like my classroom and like the Harvard English department isn't one of them. The things people need or seek out adult advice in college, in in this particular college, from me, four, tend to be either various flavors of trans identity or various kinds of disability and neurodiversity. So people who change pronouns while I'm teaching them, people who want to talk about how they're not sure how they identify, people who want to analyze at, at length literary characters or situations, where gender is fluid, and also people who want support for mental health stuff and for having a kind of brain that doesn't always fit in with what Harvard wants and what the workplace wants. I do, however, and this, this isn't new, I do advise students, and I do meet with students who are extremely confident in their cis-gay or cis-lesbian identity who want to pursue literary projects that are about those kinds of queerness. And that's really fun, and I'm happy to support that. But the students who come to mind who've done projects about queer visibility, about gay-lesbian and bi-visibility in literature and versions of queerness that are more about who you love than about like how your body doesn't fit in, those are more likely to be students who have had other support for who they are before I meet them. Or who have other support for becoming who they are outside, you know, literary studies. I'm, I'm sure that I've had students who, in multiple classes, where like they're sophomores and they don't realize they're gay. And then I and they write about they write papers for me about whatever they're writing about, and it's great. And congratulations, that was a really good way to write about women, um, or Virginia Woolf, or whoever. And then they come back in a year and they want to, They they. the paragraph one of the next paper is, my interest in this writer stems from my identity as a bisexual woman. So I'm not saying people don't come out at Harvard, they absolutely do. I'm saying that I think there's more confidence among today's teens in cis gay identities and more support outside the classroom for coming out in cis gay neurotypical bodies. And there's more of a, an unmet demand for trans visibility and also for other kinds of other kinds of visibility that appear to correlate with transness. I don't know why this is, but I do know that I see this in in my life and in my friend groups. And I think there's some social science evidence for it. Trans and Gender non-conforming people are more likely to be on the autism spectrum and more likely to be visibly neurodivergent than
0: hmm. I haven't I haven't heard that information
1: yet. So um you're not gonna see it in an as far as I know, you're not gonna see it in an acting and directing based community, which I know you spend time in, and you're not gonna see it in a poetry community, although there are obviously trans poets and there are neurodiverse poets, but I see it in science fiction communities and communities organized around non-realist stories, around stories of bodies that do impossible things and bodies that break rules, which is what superheroes are. And again, you know, my sample of people who read SF and my sample of people who read comic books, uh, my sample of people who read superhero comic books, which is not the same as comics, is absolutely not representative but that those are communities that do seem to have a lot of people who need to exist in non-realist worlds, worlds where our bodies make more sense and our way of processing the world moment to moment makes more sense.
0: Oh, I know, I know what you're talking about. Actually, oh, okay. <laughs> Can you describe it that way, totally. Okay, yeah, yeah, I've been to uh, I've been to many a comic con, um, and okay. I feel like there is a representation. Or at least even in some of the friends that I know, mm-hmm. yeah. And in some places, some you know communities I've been a part of used to be like, yeah, we're like techie um, folks who have a sci-fi. F- I I know what, I know what you're describing. Actually, yeah, I do know this thing that you're describing. Yeah. This um, interest, yeah, and uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to me.
1: And it's it's also correlated. It shows up in certain certain job sectors, you know, software. I'm, I'm very close. Someone I'm very close to right now, who's a programmer, who's a non-binary femme, who has a running joke about whether there are, in fact, any cis people in his software field. And it's it's a joke, but it's not a joke. The the you know software is is one of the fields that seems to be full of people who's for whom the, the realistic everyday physical visible world is not quite right. We need other worlds. We need more worlds. We need maybe worlds that make more sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think that and I don't want to talk about <laughs> man dang, I just feel like I could I could talk to you for a while and we might not ever get to um anything that makes that we might not even get to some topics I meant to speak to you about, but um, it's funny, as you're talking about that, just needing other worlds, it's it's uh, I'm just I this is bringing to mind the the Matrix, the like the the Matrix being co-opted by um, <laughs> men's rights activists.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. And it's a, the Matrix is a movie made by two trans women about trans experience.
0: Exa- exactly. Like nothing has ever been more clear in the entire in the the universe of film than that that what you just said is true and so that that is that's one of those things that just it's it's a real like oh honey whoopsie daisy you missed it you missed the whole thing that's right. you missed every part of it each sentence went over <laughs> your head you didn't see you didn't see a second of it that is correct um, but anyway um well really quickly before we head out i just want to i guess i just want to this gosh this really is not enough time to answer this question but to teach somebody to read poetry is also it's such a, seems like such, such a big task because I think poetry is one of those, if I think about um, things you could read or things you could write, it feels to me um, like one of the most challenging w- ones. You know, I think about like being in school and, the, and everybody has to read the same poem and then like decide what it's about. And the, you know, you know that moment that I'm talking about, that high pressure situation. Sometimes and,
1: I just hate school. Sure. <laughs> I, I am so well designed for the educational system that it took me a very long time. And now that I'm a parent, I see it more. Um, and if I were teaching in another kind of college, I'd see it more. But it took me a very long time to realize how poorly schools serve so many people who are in them. Just how, how bad the one size fits all. You have 45 minutes to get the right answer system that we have is for everything. And- I mean the, the standard ways, both in popular culture and in a lot of university and high school and, and middle school classes, of talking about what poems are and how to read them bugged me so much that when a very kind and generous editor, Laura Heimer at Basic Books, called me and asked if I wanted to write a book about how to read poetry, My almost immediate response was, yes, we're going to call it Don't Read Poetry. (laughs) And, you know, I have it right here. Don't Read Poetry, a book about how to read poems published by Basic Books in 2019, which was also the first book that I published where that had my correct name on the first edition.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Um, My poetry books, at least one of them has been reprinted with the correct name, which is nice. Uh, But what you know, don't read poetry is about and what I try to do when I'm teaching poems in poetry classrooms is poems are like foods are like animals are especially like music and different people like different things. And music is art forms made with organized sounds and poems are art forms made with organized words and foods are, you know, artful creations that you can eat that give you nutrition, calories, vitamins, but it's they don't all work the same way. Ice cream isn't the same thing as kiwi fruit, unless it's kiwi fruit ice cream. Bad example. Ice cream isn't the same thing as <laughs> venison jerky. And Marion Moore isn't the same thing as Courtney Lamar Charleston, who isn't the same thing as George Herbert. And Haley Kiyoko isn't the same thing as Stephen Sondheim, who isn't the same thing as Scott Joplin. And if you get really into it, you can talk about the shared assumptions and rules and patterns in all music or in all nutrition or in all poems. But people, different people like different poems for different reasons and climb inside them so they can do different things. And The reason Don't Read Poetry, the the book, is organized the way that it is, is that it's organized around the sort of six biggest reasons why I think people like the poems that we like. And you can like different poems for different reasons. Some poems show your own feelings back to you and you can kind of live inside them. Some poems give you the feeling that you're meeting a character, you're meeting a person you wouldn't have otherwise met. Some poems give you a sense of community and some poems just make you say, whoa, I didn't know anyone could do that with words. That is technically amazing. And it's, wow. it, I mean, and what what you want to do with a poem if you want to figure out how it works depends on what it does for you. And it drives me up a tree when people claim that all poems work the same way. They do not.
0: That was a beautiful answer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful answer. That's a good question. So, so- Stephanie, um, I'm going to send you back into your day in a moment, but okay. I wanted to ask you to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel you could be who you are today. Can I name a couple very quickly?
1: Yes. Okay. Uh, cause I wanted people, I, people I, I know and people who I barely know who are you know, living writers and people I'm never going to meet. So. I want to mention the poet D.A. Powell, whose collection of his first three books is called Cocktails. um, Or, no, it's called Repast. Cocktails is the third book. Uh, Almost all of D.A. Powell's books are very good. They're very embodied. They're very sexual. They're very welcoming. They alternate between being super explicit and being, and sort of inviting subtle interpretation. And his identities are not my identities and his reference points are not necessarily my reference points. Um, He's someone who's super into disco and who's super into old movies. And he's a cis gay man. Who's a lot, not a lot, somewhat older than me. Um, But slowly figuring out in the late nineties and early two thousands, why I liked his poetry and how much I liked his poetry definitely helped me think about my own queer and trans embodiment and the possibility of my finding not just sort of how to be a good person and write books and be a good friend, but romantic and erotic and embodied happiness and community eventually. So D.A. Powell, the poet, I sort of want to name the whole current community of X-Men fandom. Uh, I want to name the... Podcasters, Jay Edidin and Miles Stokes and Connor Goldsmith uh, in particular, and uh, Zach Jenkins and Adam Rack, who are also podcasters, and Zach is an editor. Um, this is a whole group of people with diverse identities, uh, some of whom are cishet guys, and some of whom are in various stages of coming out, and many of whom identify as trans. And it's a space for Geeking out about something that's historically not very high prestige, right? If there's a Harvard course about Paradise Lost, which there is, it's because people at Harvard have known for, have believed correctly, in my view, for a few hundred years, that John Milton's poetry was worth studying. If there's a course at Harvard about the X Men, it's because I'm teaching it and I'm going to invite my friends. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so just this, this property that hasn't been co-opted by an educational system that's so rich and various and filled with the contradictions of society. And that's so easy to make queer positive and trans inclusive. Um, so that whole X community and I'm um, maybe that's, maybe those are my answers. The X community, including uh, and and I've, I've just made so many friends recently through that. Um, that's partly how I know Rachel Gold, who's too close to me to be a, a hero. Like, you can't spotlight personal friends as heroes like that. But whose first novel, this is how I got to know them, it's a novel called Being Emily. And it's not the first trans YA by any means. But it's the first trans YA novel ever that you'd want to give to a trans girl. That you'd want to say, here, read this. Because all the ones that came before that were really bad. They were really like, you will get beat up and people will hate you. And what a freak you will be. So I, I do want to mention that body of work. Look out for more of it. I think the other queerer I want to mention, back when I was much more heavily involved in obscure pop music fandoms than I am now, is the... English pop duo Blue Boy. There are a couple of bands called Blue Boy. This is the one uh, that was duo from Reading, England, uh, with um, Keith Girdler, who has since passed away, uh, who was the singer, and Paul Stewart, who played guitar. And Blue Boy were singing about having extremely complicated gender identity and sexuality. In super catchy, beautiful, hummable, very soft, and occasionally very rocking ways in like 1994, when no one was doing that. When the only other source for queerness in the music that I could find was either dance club music, and I wasn't going out clubbing, or Riot Girl, which I loved but couldn't identify because it was for, it was for girls who were 18 at the time, and I was already teaching them. And Blue Boy... We're making soft, sad, vulnerable, romantic, complicated music about being extremely queer, about wondering if you were doomed to do sex work you didn't want, about fitting in nowhere between the tropes for gay men and the tropes of straight romance. Uh, their best album is called Unisex, and the title track. Uh, has the chorus a boy alone is just the same as a girl alone sadness is unisex keith girdler from what i've read was very canny about exactly how he wanted to be identified the songs were very queer but the last time i saw them i was in i had the good fortune to be in england about once a year in the late 90s i was going back to visit friends the last time i saw them they were doing a show in their hometown of Reading, and they were about 100 or 150 people there, and I just sort of took a, a train there for the the evening and just stuck around really obviously fangirling at them. And they gave me a T-shirt with the cover of their, their latest single. And I didn't come up to Keith and Paul. Remember, Keith is not around anymore. He became a social worker and then died of a, a rare cancer more than 10 years ago now, but the music's out there on Spotify. Uh, I just sort of came up to them, and I forget what I said. I might have said, you know, "I'm I'm a zine writer, which was true at the time, or, you know, I just love everything that you do, and just sort of melted. And I didn't say, this music speaks to me as an egg, as a trans girl who's not totally out to herself like nothing else did. I didn't say any of that, but... The duo who were the core of the band, just I remember them sort of looking at me and saying, "Yeah, yeah, we know. Thank you." And I felt seen by a piece of music in a way that I never quite had before. I should thank the members of the band Catenary Wires, who used to be in a lot of other bands, having like Tolula Gosh, Tender Trap, uh, especially Amelia Fletcher and Rob Percy, who were my links to that scene who I wouldn't have done that without them, and they've been artistic inspirations. But if you're looking for specifically queer inspiration from the music I care about, you want to go to the band Blue Boy.
0: Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for your time today and for just being so articulate. It was really nice to spend time with you um, as you went down a bunch of different, like, cool, windy roads. Very cool.
1: I I hope all the roads got places. Thank you.
0: I... I think they did, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But thank you, yeah,
1: uh, for being here. Yeah, no, thank you for for using your like host skills. Like, I'll just say this because you can't say it because you are the host, but it's something that like listeners to podcasts like this one should just like no, just hosting is a skill. Being able to draw <laughs> people who don't necessarily have a lot in common other than queerness and maybe ambition out, like thank you. This, no, is really yeah, this is really fun. This is really fun. I really
0: appreciate it.